going on everybody welcome back to the show i i just can't stay away i haven't even started my show notes yet i keep wanting to just create content i need to hire somebody to do all all of the shit i don't want to do That's a, that's part of the problem of being a solo podcaster, people. I don't have a team of underlings that I can just send on, you know, missions. I can't delegate authority to anybody. It's just me. And all I want to do is run my mouth and talk about crazy shit. I don't want to do the business side of it. I don't want to do I mean, I like doing the writing. I'll do the writing. I'll write the show notes, I'll write the blogs, I'll write all that stuff. But the business side of it, the social media, the promo, the, you know, I don't know, man. I just, it's not my thing. If you're a new listener to my show, my fellow Americans, my name is Andrew for America. And this is The Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I'm still in hiatus, uh, but I'm going to call this episode 101. Um, I'm really enjoying the single life, people. Uh, I'm really enjoying being 100% in control of everything I do. And I'm really, really enjoying not feeling like I need to be obligated to take somebody else's thoughts, feelings, and ideas into consideration. (laughs) Uh, I do miss my dog. And I don't think I'm going to get my dog back, to be honest with you. (sighs) It's tough. But I've already mourned that loss. And I'm rebuilding. I am the... Phoenix rising. Something has to die to be reborn, right? Uh, And I'm not going to take this anymore, says Rise Against. (laughs) Or no, I don't want to be here anymore. That's what it is. I don't want to be here anymore. Something, something left worth staying for. Your paradise is something I've endured. Oh, whoa, oh, whoa. See, I don't think I can fight this anymore. I'm listening with one foot out the door. And something has to die to be reborn. And I don't want to be here anymore. God, I hope I don't get in trouble for copyright for singing that on my show. I fucking love that song, though, dude. I love Rise Against. They're one of my favorite punk rock bands. Um, so today, I'm going to kind of start my new direction. I'm going to start going in, in a new way, I guess you could say. Uh, I'm going to start diving into shit. And one of the things I want to dive into is an experiment that was done back in the day called the Mouse Utopia Experiment. And I'm going to play, I think, like a six and a half minute long clip for you. And I want you to listen very carefully. There's a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance to pick up from this clip you're about to hear. Uh, They're talking about what they're talking about, this mouse utopia experiment. But they're also talking about hidden 
uh, not overt in your face uh, subtleties, eccentricities. Uh, there's a lot to unpack from this, actually. Uh, this clip, when I heard it, it motivated me to talk about it on my show because it's just, there's just so much to unpack from this clip. There's a lot in here. And I was very fascinated by this. And I think you will be too. Um, just to kind of set the stage for you, be thinking about concepts like you know, simulation theory and the Matrix uh, trilogy and, or whatever it is. What's after a trilogy? Is there four of them now? Isn't there one the fourth? I think it's four, anyway. Um, but I just, I just want you to be thinking about how what you're about to hear is applicable to the human race and to what we are seeing in our society right now in the 21st century. And I don't think it's localized to just the United States. I think the entire world uh, is starting to... I mean, every, obviously everybody has their differences and some societies are still way, way, way back in the Stone Age. But... In civilized first world societies, everybody's pretty much living the same way, regardless of the, the type of government, um, regardless of the, you know, the culture and the way that the government operates. I'm starting to believe that, you know, the entire world is pretty much running on the same standard of living. I mean, the entire world is pretty much at the whim of us. That's why we sell treasury bonds, right? That's why we can't uh, pay off our debt and start running surpluses because, you know, the Federal Reserve wouldn't have a freaking purpose anymore. <laughs> and if you want to dive into that, boy, I tell you what, people, Sam Winchester on the According to Sam podcast, he has been... <laughs> He's been knocking home runs out of the park with his past few episodes, like 117 through 119, uh, talking about the inflation and the Federal Reserve and the January 6th insurrection and the political theater that's going on with this sham trial. I mean, his content has been crushing lately. I highly recommend people go listen to According to Sam. And also Ryan Dean from the Dangerous World podcast, brief aside. Some of his recent analysis on some conspiratorial topics has been awesome. And I know I, I, I mention him from time to time on my show, but people, if you're not listening to the Dangerous World podcast with Ryan Dean, you're, you're, you're fucking up. You're fucking up. And if you're not listening to The Great Deception with Matt, uh, you're definitely fucking up. You got to go listen to Moral Bob 2, the Hidden in Plain Sight podcast. You got to go listen to The Deep Share. You got to listen to Wicked Planet. And there's a lot more podcasters out there that I've been interacting with lately. And there's so many of us people, it's hard for me to listen to all your stuff. And this message goes out to all of you podcasters that I want to digest your content. I really do. Uh, but I just don't have time. I'm trying. I'm going to try to... When I get time, I'm going to listen to your stuff. I promise. I'm going to dive in. Um, the reason why I promote the people that I promote on my show is because these are people that I've had uh, lots of conversations with already via social media, that's one of the beauties of the 21st century interconnected world, in my humble opinion, is that we can all talk to each other. It's, it's fucking great. And if you waste that and isolate yourself from the world, I think you're fucking up as well. If you do that. You gotta stay connected, people. You gotta talk to each other. You gotta have conversations. You gotta be willing to learn and grow and achieve goals. Uh, okay. 
Podcasters, though, I promise, I'm going to listen to your stuff. Everybody that's been reaching out to me, and I thank you for reaching out to me. I love that people are connecting with my show and are engaging and uh, enjoying the content. I'm starting to feel uh, like I'm making a little bit of a dent, and it feels good. And I'm going to keep it going, and I hope all of you guys and gals do too. Okay. I'm going to play this clip for you people. Let's get serious. Let's dive in. Let's put our thinking caps on. Let's 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 get open-minded and ready to receive controversial information, okay? Take a listen to this clip. I might actually play it twice just to hammer it home. But I think that this experiment is profound when applying its findings to the human race. Take a listen to this clip on the mouse utopia experiment. Back in 1972, the Rockefeller Foundation funded a study that's become known as the mouse utopia experiment. Something like it was discussed in the film The Matrix when Agent Smith is interrogating Morpheus. It's a little known fact that the first Matrix was programmed to be an ideal habitat for humans. All needs provided for, but it failed miserably. Your species rejected the code because you're hardwired for pain and suffering. Entire crops of humans died and we were forced to reconfigure the system. Behaviorist John B. Calhoun built a mouse paradise with limitless food, where the mice would have everything that they would need. Utopian conditions of nutrition, comfort, and housing were provided for a potential population of over 3,000 mice. In just two years, eight mice turned into 2,200 before they succumbed to a mouse apocalypse. The use of resources became unequal. Although each living unit was identical in structure and opportunity, more food and water was consumed in some areas. What Calhoun found was, once the population increased to a certain threshold, even though they technically had everything they needed, those who lived in the highly populated areas would become randomly aggressive, violent, and withdrawn. Violence became prevalent. Females rarely carried babies to term, and when they did, they hardly cared for them. The larger the population, the less care a mother gives to her nest and young. The younger generations would not even attempt to reproduce, but spent all of their time eating and grooming themselves, and ultimately they grew quite dumb. Other young mice growing into adulthood exhibited an even different type of behavior. Dr. Calhoun called these individuals the beautiful ones. Their time was devoted solely to grooming, eating, and sleeping. They never involved themselves with others, engaged in sex, nor would they fight. All appeared as a beautiful exhibit of the species, with keen alert eyes and a healthy, well-kept body. These mice, however, could not cope with unusual stimuli. Though they looked inquisitive, they were, in fact, very stupid. The study was repeated with rats hooked up to electromagnetic sensors in a multi-level high-rise-like structure with similar results. Though they technically had everything they needed, they lacked purpose. Calhoun said himself that he saw the fate of his mouse population as a metaphor for the potential fate of man. One human experiment of the same vein was Pruitt-Igo. An urban housing project consisting of 33 11-story apartment buildings on St. Louis's lower north side. These developments are run by the St. Louis Housing Authority. This is a far cry from the crowded, collapsing tenements that many of these people have known. Here in bright new buildings with spacious grounds, they can live. Live with indoor plumbing, electric lights, fresh plastered walls, and the rest of the conveniences that are expected in the 20th century. First occupied in 1954, the same year as Calhoun began his mouse studies at NIMH, Pruitt-Igo was supposed to be a shining solution to overcrowding and to replace the dilapidated mess of poor and working-class slums that had taken over most of St. Louis when half the industrial base moved away after the war. But there were strings attached. All kinds of regulations and restrictions were put on the Pruitt-Igo residents. 
The father of the household was not allowed to live with his own family, and they sent welfare workers around to make sure the men weren't in the apartments. The people were put under total control and became hopelessly dependent. In just two years, the urban planning social experiment began to fall apart. Tried for three days to get city and housing authority officials to help remedy the plight. The disaster that fell on Pruitt-Igo and the water lines in several of the Pruitt-Igo apartment buildings broke. A sewer line is broken. Maintenance crews to board up an estimated 10,000 broken windows. Now raw sewage bubbles out of the ground like a malevolent spray. Breakdown of services. Clean up the mess. No one ever showed. You need, first of all, to have this area declared as a disaster area and an emergency area. The sense that the housing project was also an experimental laboratory was literally in the air. It came out decades later that during the 1950s and 60s, Pruitt-Igo was even the subject of top-secret chemical warfare tests conducted by the U.S. military who sprayed a zinc-cadmium-sulfide aerosol containing radioactive material over the low-income housing area to assess its effects. The Department of Defense has assigned primary responsibility to the Chemical Corps, U.S. Army, for basic research in biological and chemical agents. Reports of links to cancer have surfaced, but have never been causally linked. Of course, the Army insisted it was harmless. Just like in the Mouse Utopia experiment, violent gangs took over. Within a few years, the place had been ripped apart by its unimproved tenants. Old and middle-aged people were scared to live there, and the young were in the corridors with flick knives. It devolved into total chaos, vandalism, and squalor, to the point that residents lived in fear, and police and firemen refused to go to Pruitt-Igo even during the day. The buildings were finally demolished beginning in 1972, the same year Calhoun's mouse utopia devolved into extinction. So the elites running the show realize that ultimately, the utopia of universal basic income might look nice on paper, but it won't work. To enjoy your work, you'll need to find enough more than money. You'll need personal satisfaction, pride of accomplishment, a sense of importance to others. The masses become shiftless, depressed, angry, and antisocial. And maybe the elite are fine with that. But they're centralizing power anyway in preparation for return to feudalism. The oligarchical collectivism coming our way, where we're all hamsters in a cage living on a dole managed from a highly centralized, militarized government above. All of this ties back to eugenics. The elite have manufactured a future that is only meant for a select few. Oh my God, there's so much I want to say about that clip. <laughs> um, wow. Okay, let's just start with, okay, first of all, the Rockefeller Foundation. Really? Um, and then they talked, you know, they talked about the Matrix and my biggest takeaway from the Matrix portion was your species rejected the code because you're hardwired for pain and suffering. <laughs> uh, man, what if that's true, people? What if... The reason why we cry and bitch and moan and complain. The reason why we're weak. The reason why we're adult children. Maybe it's because we're hardwired for pain and suffering. But let me ask you something. Why is it that today's generation versus the generation of, oh, let's say the World War II generation, and even into like the Vietnam era generation? Was it just that they weren't socially connected like we are today in the 21st century? Is that why they believed 
the propaganda for so long? Is that why they allowed themselves to be hoodwinked for so long? Because they didn't have the access to information that we now have here in the 21st century. Think about it, people. And then think about the reality that this John D. Calhoun guy, I'll talk about him in a minute. But what happened to his experiment with the mice? The population grew exponentially, and then the behavior changed. Utopian conditions were implemented. But a utopia did not materialize. Females didn't want to bear children. They didn't want to take care of their kids. Isn't that very similar to what's happening today? They're trying to reduce the population. They're trying to put it in people's heads that, hey, you know, you don't need children. And, the, and realistically, the world is getting too expensive to care for them. you got to make a lot of money to be able to afford kids these days, right? So, you know, the Matrix talked about it, and then this John D. Calhoun experiment, uh, you know, applied it to the real world. You can't give humans utopian conditions because they will reject the code. They're hardwired for pain and suffering. And that reminds me of Buddhism, people. Life is suffering. You will never not suffer. And that's just the way it is. So you're going to have to dive inwardly, solve the problems within you, discover whatever makes you whole, whatever makes you, you know, spiritual maybe, religious, whatever you got to do, whatever gets you through the day, right? So, the fucked up federal government took this mouse utopia experiment and applied it to the real world people with the Pruitt Igo project communities in St. Louis back in the what 50s and 60s I think it was you know the mouse utopia made real life and what did this person say in this clip that eventually the society degenerates as soon as a, a, a government takes total control and authoritarianism takes root over a society, what happens? Behavior changes. People don't want to take care of their kids anymore. People become androgynous, yada, yada, etc., etc. This experiment not only can be applied to real life right now here today in the 21st century, but it, it was applied to the real world in St. Louis in the 50s and 60s. And there was a top secret plan to drop a zinc cadmium sulfide aerosol over this population of Pruitt Igo housing projects in St. Louis back in the day. People, our government has been experimenting on its citizens. We have been guinea pigs throughout American history, and it's fucking gross that a lot of you people, you useful idiots, can't see this stuff. The more you dive in, the more you realize how fucked the human species has become over the years. It's sad. It brings tears to my eyes. 
And then in this total control authoritarianism, women don't want to have kids experiment anymore by this John D. Calhoun guy. He said that eventually the society degenerated into violence and gangs took over. That's what's happening in the world right now. And this Pruitt Igo, you know, divolved or whatever, like degenerated, I guess, the same year that the Mouse Utopia went extinct, which was like early 70s, 71, which just so happened to be when America went off the gold standard. People, America took another dip towards being fucked in the 70s, people. <laughs> Boy, go look at your history. Go look at the Carter administration leading into Reagan. Oh, people, people. Ever since JFK, I've said it a million times. <laughs> LBJ said that he would have black people voting Democrat for the next 40 years, but he didn't use the term black people, if you know what I mean. You know, and then we got, what, Ford, Nixon, Carter. <laughs> you know, Ford and Reagan were buddies, and then and then came Reagan. And then Bush, and you know the rest. People, we have been... Figgity fucked ever since they took out JFK. Period. That's the reality, in my humble opinion. <laughs> oh, people, there's so much in this clip. I want to play it again. I want to play it again for you. I want you guys to take a listen to this. There's so much knowledge and wisdom. You know, for a guy like me that researches this stuff and seeks this kind of stuff out, when I find little gems like this, and I think this was shared, some podcaster actually shared this clip on Instagram, and I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. But if you posted this and you listened to my show, you will know that it was you that I pulled this from. I'll put the clip in the show notes. I'm sure if you do a little digging, you can figure it out who originally posted this. But I want you guys to listen to this again, because I think that this is a very compelling, profound, educational clip that says a lot. It really does. It says a lot. And I'm going to talk about John D. Calhoun after I play this clip for you again. One more time. Here we go. Take a listen to the story of the Mouse Utopia and the Pruitt Igo housing projects in St. Louis. Here we go, one more time. Back in 1972, the Rockefeller Foundation funded a study that's become known as the Mouse Utopia Experiment. Something like it was discussed in the film The Matrix when Agent Smith is interrogating Morpheus. It's a little known fact. The first Matrix was programmed to be an ideal habitat for humans. All needs provided for, but it failed miserably. Your species rejected the code because you're hardwired for pain and suffering. Entire crops of humans died when we were forced to reconfigure the system. Behaviorist John B. Calhoun built a mouse paradise with limitless food, where the mice would have everything that they would need. Utopian conditions of nutrition, comfort, and housing were provided for a potential population of over 3,000 mice. In just two years, eight mice turned into 2,200 before they succumbed to a mouse apocalypse. The use of resources became unequal. Although each living unit was identical in structure and opportunity, more food and water was consumed in some areas. What Calhoun found was, once the population increased to a certain threshold, even though they technically had everything they needed, those who lived in the highly populated areas would become randomly aggressive violent and withdrawn. Violence became prevalent. Females rarely carried babies to term, and when they did, they hardly cared for them. The larger the population, the less care a mother gives to her nest and young. The younger generations would not even attempt to reproduce, but spent all of their time eating and grooming themselves, and ultimately they grew quite dumb. Other young mice growing into adulthood exhibited an even different type of behavior. 
Dr. Calhoun called these individuals the beautiful ones. Their time was devoted solely to grooming, eating, and sleeping. They never involved themselves with others, engaged in sex, nor would they fight. All appeared as a beautiful exhibit of the species, with keen alert eyes and a healthy, well-kept body. These mice, however, could not cope with unusual stimuli. Though they looked inquisitive, they were, in fact, very stupid. The study was repeated with rats hooked up to electromagnetic sensors in a multi-level high-rise-like structure, with similar results. Though they technically had everything they needed, they lacked purpose. Calhoun said himself that he saw the fate of his mouse population as a metaphor for the potential fate of man. One human experiment of the same vein was Pruitt-Igo, an urban housing project consisting of 33 11-story apartment buildings on St. Louis's lower north side. These developments are run by the St. Louis Housing Authority. This is a far cry from the crowded, collapsing tenements that many of these people have known. Here in bright new buildings with spacious grounds, they can live, live with indoor plumbing, electric lights, fresh plastered walls, and the rest of the conveniences that are expected in the 20th century. First occupied in 1954, the same year as Calhoun began his mouse studies at NIMH, Pruitt-Igo was supposed to be a shining solution to overcrowding and to replace the dilapidated mess of poor and working class slums that had taken over most of St. Louis when half the industrial base moved away after the war. But there were strings attached. All kinds of regulations and restrictions were put on the Pruitt-Igo residents. The father of the household was not allowed to live with his own family, and they sent welfare workers around to make sure the men weren't in the apartments. The people were put under total control and became hopelessly dependent. In just two years, the urban planning social experiment began to fall apart. Tried for three days to get city and housing authority officials to help remedy the plight. The disaster that fell on Pruitt-Igo and the water lines in several of the Pruitt-Igo apartment buildings broke. A sewer line is broken. Maintenance crews to board up an estimated 10,000 broken windows. Now raw sewage bubbles out of the ground like a malevolent spray. Breakdown of services. Clean up the mess. No one ever showed. You need, first of all, to have this area declared as a disaster area and an emergency area. The sense that the housing project was also an experimental laboratory was literally in the air. It came out decades later that during the 1950s and 60s, Pruitt-Igo was even the subject of top-secret chemical warfare tests conducted by the U.S. military who sprayed a zinc-cadmium-sulfide aerosol containing radioactive material over the low-income housing area to assess its effects. The Department of Defense has assigned primary responsibility to the Chemical Corps, U.S. Army, for basic research in biological and chemical agents. Reports of links to cancer have surfaced, but have never been causally linked. Of course, the Army insisted it was harmless. Just like in the Mouse Utopia experiment, violent gangs took over. Within a few years, the place had been ripped apart by its unimproved tenants. Old and middle-aged people were scared to live there, and the young were in the corridors with flick knives. It devolved into total chaos, vandalism, and squalor, to the point that residents lived in fear, and police and firemen refused to go to Pruitt-Igo even during the day. The buildings were finally demolished beginning in 1972, the same year Calhoun's mouse utopia devolved into extinction. So the elites running the show realized that ultimately, the utopia of universal basic income might look nice on paper, but it won't work. To enjoy your work, you'll need to find enough more than money. You'll need personal satisfaction, pride of accomplishment, a sense of importance to others. The masses become shiftless, depressed, angry, and antisocial. And maybe the elite are fine with that. But they're centralizing power anyway in preparation for return to feudalism. The oligarchical collectivism coming our way, where we're all hamsters in a cage living on a dole managed from a highly centralized, militarized government above. All of this ties back to eugenics. The elite have manufactured a future that is only meant for a select few. <sighs> okay. 
So a little bit about John, I'm sorry, B. Calhoun. John B. Calhoun. Not D and not C. There's a lot of John Calhouns from our past, it turns out. <laughs> but these utopian mouse experiments were done by John B. Bravo Calhoun. One of the more famous ethologists, ethologists in recent decades, John B. Calhoun. Best known for his mouse experiments in the 1960s. To what extent do the mouse utopia lessons apply to humans? And this was from Lawrence W. Reed for Fee. Signs in national and state parks all over America warn visitors, please don't feed the animals. <laughs> Some of those government-owned parks provide further explanation, such as the animals may bite or it makes them dependent. The National Park Service's website for Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan advises, it transforms wild and healthy animals into habitual beggars. <laughs> Studies have shown that panhandling animals have a shorter lifespan. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can believe this, but let's keep reading. What would happen if animals in the wild could count on human sources for their diet and never have to hunt or scrounge. What if, in other words, we humans imposed a generous welfare state on our furry friends? Would the resulting experience offer any lessons for humans who might be subjected to similar conditions? Not having to work for food and shelter sounds appealing and compassionate, doesn't it? These are fascinating questions that I am certainly not the first to ask. Because they require knowledge beyond my own, I cannot offer definitive answers. Readers should view what I present here as a prod to thought and discussion and not much more. I report you decide. That's a great disclaimer by this author. Nice work, Lawrence W. Reed. Good job. Our personal pets live in a sort of welfare state. Moreover, for the most part, they seem to like it. Excuse me. My two rat terriers get free food and free health care. Though I am not only their provider, but I am also their master, too. In fact, my loving domination is a condition for the free stuff. It seems like a win-win. So maybe a welfare state can work after all, right? Let us avoid hasty conclusions. Perhaps the human pet welfare state works because one of the parties has a brain the size of a golf ball or a pomegranate. <laughs> this is an area illuminated by ethology, the scientific study of animal behavior. One of the more famous ethologists in recent decades was John B. Calhoun, most known for his mouse experiments in the 1960s when he worked for the National Institute for Mental Health. Calhoun enclosed four pairs of mice in a 9 by 4.5 foot metal pan complete with water dispensers, tunnels, food bins, and nesting boxes. He provided all the food and water they needed and ensured that no predator could gain access. It was a mouse utopia. Calhoun's intent was to observe the effects on the mice of population density. 
But the experiment produced results that went beyond that. I shall largely speak of mice, but my thoughts are on man, he would later write in a comprehensive report. At first, the mice did well. Their numbers doubled every 55 days. But after 600 days, with enough space to accommodate as many as another 1,600 rodents, the population peaked at 2,200 and began to decline precipitously, straight down to the extinction of the entire colony, in spite of their material needs being met, with no effort required on the part of any mouse. The turning point in this mouse utopia, Calhoun observed, occurred on day 315, when the first signs appeared of a breakdown in social norms and structure. Aberrations included the following, females abandoning their young, males no longer defending their territory, and both sexes becoming more violent and aggressive. Deviant behavior, sexual and social, mounted with each passing day. The last thousand mice to be born tended to avoid stressful activity and focused their attention increasingly on themselves. Jan Kuban, a personal friend of mine from Warsaw and a Polish bio-cybernetician, considers Calhoun's experiment one of the most important in human history. He created the Physics of Life website where he elaborates on the meaning and significance of the ethologist's work. About the final stages of the mouse utopia, Kuban writes, other young mice growing into adulthood exhibited an even different type of behavior. Dr. Calhoun called these individuals the beautiful ones, quote-unquote. Their time was devoted solely to grooming, eating, and sleeping. They never involved themselves with others, engaged in sex, nor would they fight. All appeared outwardly as a beautiful exhibit of the species with keen, alert eyes and a healthy, well-kept body. These mice, however, could not cope with unusual stimuli. Though they looked inquisitive, they were in fact very stupid. Because of the externally provided abundance of water and food combined with zero threats from any predators. The mice never had to acquire resources on their own. The mice, the young mice, never observed such actions and never learned them. The life skills necessary for survival faded away. As Kuban notes, utopia, when one has everything at any moment for no expenditure, prompts declines in responsibility, effectiveness, and awareness of social dependence, and finally, as Dr. Calhoun's study showed, leads to self 
extinction. The behavioral sink of self-destructive conduct in Calhoun's experiment, which he replicated on numerous subsequent occasions, has since been mostly interpreted as resulting from crowded conditions. Demographers warn that humans might succumb to similar aberrations if world population should ever exceed some imaginary optimal maximum, quote-unquote. Others like Kuban point out that the mice utopia fell apart well before the mouse enclosure was full, even at the peak of the population, some 20% of nesting beds were unoccupied. My instincts tell me that Kuban is correct in suggesting that a more likely culprit in the mice demise was this, the lack of a healthy challenge people take away the motivation to overcome obstacles notably the challenge of providing for oneself and one's family and you deprive individuals of an important stimulus that would otherwise encourage learning what works and what doesn't also known as the scientific method, and possibly even pride in accomplishment if mice are even capable of such a sentiment. Maybe, just maybe, personal growth in each mouse was inhibited by the welfare state conditions in which they lived. Calhoun himself suggested a parallel to humanity. Quote, Herein is the paradox of a life without work or conflict. When all sense of necessity is stripped from the life of an individual, the life ceases to have purpose. The individual dies in spirit. Remember when Mr. Anderson was pissed off at Neo in the Matrix, and he said, I've come to take from you what you have taken from me. Purpose. By relieving individuals of challenges, which then deprives them of purpose, the welfare state is an utterly unnatural and anti-social contrivance. In the mouse experiment, the individuals ultimately lost interest in the things that perpetuate the species. They self-isolated, overindulged themselves, and turned to violence. Does that ring a bell? Read Charles Murray's 1984 book, Losing Ground, or George Gilder's earlier work, Wealth and Poverty. And I guarantee that you will hear that bell. Or, if nothing else, ponder these prophetic words from one of the otherwise short-sighted opportunistic architects of the American welfare state, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In 1935, said, The lessons of history, confirmed by the evidence of immediately before me, confirmed by the evidence immediately before me, sorry, show conclusively that continued dependence upon relief induces a spiritual and moral disintegration fundamentally destructive to the national fiber. To dole out relief in this way is to administer a narcotic, a subtle destroyer 
of the human spirit. I can think of one big difference between Calhoun's mouth utopia and the human welfare state, and it does not weigh in humanity's favor, sadly. For the mice, everything truly was free. No mouse was taxed so another mouse could benefit. In the human welfare state, however, one human's benefit is a cost to another or to many. A fact that rarely acts as an incentive for work, savings, investment, or other positive behaviors. That suggests that a human welfare state with its seductive subsidies for some and punishing taxes for others delivers a double blow not present in mouse welfareism. To what extent do the mouse utopia lessons apply to we humans? I would be careful about drawing sweeping conclusions. I am reminded, however, of these words from economist Thomas Sowell. And people, my next episode is going to be 100% about Mr. Thomas Sowell. The welfare state shields people from the consequences of their own mistakes, allowing irresponsibility to continue and to flourish among ever wider circles of people. We should not need mice or other animals to teach us that, but perhaps they can. And people, I want to leave you with this. If you want to learn, if you want to grow, if you want to achieve, if you want to get better, smarter, more aware, more connected, more mature, more rational, pragmatic, wise, Take a listen to this clip, this little quote from Carl Sagan talking about books and how important books are. People don't focus enough in this day and age, in my humble opinion, on how important the knowledge in books, physical books is for the human species. And I'm going to read this quote to you right now. This is a quote about books and the importance of them from Mr. Carl Sagan. For 99% of the tenure of humans on earth, Nobody could read or write. The great invention had not yet been made. Except for first-hand experience, almost everything we knew was passed on by word of mouth. As in the children's game Telephone, over tens and hundreds of generations, information would slowly be distorted and lost. Books changed all of that. Books, purchasable at low cost, permit us to interrogate the past with high accuracy, to tap the wisdom of our species, to understand the point of view of others, and not just those in power, to contemplate with the best teachers, the insights painfully extracted from nature of the greatest minds that ever were, drawn from the entire planet and from all of our history. 
They allow people long dead to talk inside our heads. Books can accompany us everywhere. Books are patient where we are slow to understand. Allow us to go over the hard parts as many times as we wish and are never critical of our lapses. Books are key to understanding the world and participating in a democratic society. That was from The Path to Freedom by Carl Sagan. People, it's time to play some punk rock. people welcome back to the show uh if you follow me on facebook and twitter and instagram you know that i posted a video not too long ago stupid little idiot video i played a little punk rock song i wrote called fools and uh it was kind of a lyric video i put the lyrics in the video Go follow me on all your favorite uh, social media sites, people, and check out my content. But if you didn't, if you if you don't follow me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, I still want to play the song for you. So here we go. Here's a fun little punk rock song I wrote once upon a time in the not so distant past, entitled "Fools." song that's the show for today go to the website politics and punk rock podcast.com buy a t-shirt donate to the show read the show notes that are coming send me an email if you like andrew for america 1984 at gmail.com go look me up on all your favorite social media sites And enjoy the summer, people. Enjoy your life. Enjoy every possible moment.
Because you never know. One day you might go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and find yourself in a brave new Orwellian surveillance police state world order totalitarian dictatorship. You never know. It's possible. We shall see. I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Good night. I'll be back soon. I promise. We'll see you next time. This has been episode 101 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. Entitled The Mouse Utopia. We'll see you next time.